be with you. And also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Welcome to this service of ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe. On this first Sunday of the month, as is our custom, we welcome all of whatever age and station or background to participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Those listening on the radio may request communion in the home by calling the chapel office. Information about our ministry, membership, and stewardship are found in our bulletin and on our website. On this first Sunday, we ask you to ask yourself what form of your ministry here will take in the coming weeks. A community luncheon follows worship downstairs. All are warmly invited. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
may we pray. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world, evermore give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. For once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in reading responsively Psalm 23 with the antiphon. shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Glory to you, O Lord. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, 
Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. For Lent 2011 at Marsh Chapel, we have listened for the gospel in scripture and in the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and in application of the gospel of truth to our own time with help from Franklin Littell. 
Bonhoeffer's affirmation of liberal thought, affirmation of Christ as Lord of life, and affirmation of the transcendent transformation of human culture in the preaching of the gospel are at the heart of our own life together here. Like many today, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's family did not regularly go to church. They were cultural but not observant Christians. They assumed and affirmed the place of the church but did not attend. In this light, it is especially movingly meaningful to remember how Bonhoeffer's father, an eminent psychiatrist, responded to Dietrich's decision to study theology. For this family, such a decision might have become one that came with the name tag black sheep in training. Yet this is not the response dad gave. On the contrary, there was an openness, respect, admiration, mixed in with the predictable surprise, concern, and criticism, he wrote. In any case, you gain one thing from your calling, in this it resembles mine, living relationships to human beings and the possibility of meaning something to them in more important matters than medical ones. And of this, nothing can be taken away from you, even when the external institutions in which you are placed are not always as you would wish, he wrote. One detects in this early letter something of the freedom and grace within the Bonhoeffer home. On this freedom and on this grace, one may surmise and imagine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer relied as he gradually developed an understanding of life together. The disciplines of study, science, and music from his home were transposed into the disciplines of prayer and worship in the church's life together. The convivial joy of gathering and celebration, which his family exemplified even through 1944, were transposed into the regular reading of psalms, both thanksgiving and lament. The brotherhood, sisterhood of his own upbringing were transposed into a kind of fraternal love in his churches, classes, school, friendships, and even in imprisonment, on which all who knew him did regularly reflect. The fierce sense of loyalty, duty, responsible freedom, acquired within the liberal culture of Berlin in his youth, became, one could argue, and with some sense of irony, the ground out of which his later understanding emerged. Culture became the culture of faith. The gospel speaks to the height and the strength of the human being. Speaking of height and strength, in John 9, we reach the summit of the fourth gospel. Here in this morning is the crucial chapter within the fourth gospel, John 9. In it, we see clearly the two-level drama of faith, which John acclaims, as Luther said, preaching the gospel is one beggar telling another where they may both find bread. Today, we meet, in fact, two beggars. One is a man lost in the mist of memory who somehow recovered his sight at the pool of Siloam. The other is the church, John's church, and by extension, the whole church through time, including life together at Marsh Chapel existentially lost, who somehow recovers sight in the hand of Jesus the Christ. John has two eyes at work. One is trained on the distant memory of a powerful Jesus. The other is trained on the experience of the risen Lord in the life of the church. Both see by the healing action of the divine. This blind beggar and his healing and all the trouble that such a good deed occasions 
is important to John because in him, John sees clearly what is going on in his own church in 90 to 100 AD. At Siloam, there was a lonely beggar. Well, we are beggars too. In Jerusalem, one was powerfully healed. Well, we've known some healing too. With Jesus, a man's sight, his most prized faculty was restored. So too, our spirit. So long ago, Jesus was heard to say, I am the light of the world, and he is the light of our world too. Did Jesus of old bring healing to the needy? By grace, he does so every week in our midst. What the earthly Jesus did for the blind beggar, the risen Lord does for the beloved church, and that is lastingly good news. But there is other news here, too. At Siloam, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. We have learned that the Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. In Jerusalem, there is immediate conflict over what this new power means for old traditions. We, too, know the conflict between gospel and tradition. With Jesus' healing, there comes a division between generations. Such contention and difference is ours, too. Our gospel shows us two beggars, one in Jerusalem a long time ago, and one which is the church itself, to whom Jesus speaks, the risen Lord speaking in the Spirit through the very human voice of John, the risen Lord speaking through the Spirit in the very human voice of preaching. Two blind beggars, one a man and one a church. At the end, did you hear the last verse? Expulsed, thrown out, shunned, set apart. Most especially in this crafted memory, the blind man given sight is then thrown out of the synagogue for consorting with Jesus. And this is the central communal dislocation of John's church. The story culminating in John 9.22, thrown out of the synagogue, is the story of a struggling community which, like a beggar, is wandering outside of what inherited tradition alone can provide, and so are we. John 9 is what, about what happened to a community of faith in the late first century CE. Its rancorous depiction of opponents, the Jews or the Judeans, refers to those siblings in 90 AD, those closest in heart and mind with whom there has been a rupture. Not to understand the history of the fourth gospel so is tragically and irresponsibly to enhance anti-Semitism ancient and modern. The expulsion from the religious family of origin has two dimensions, one of sight and one of sound, one sociological and one theological. First, in actual experience, the little and poor community has lost its roots, its home, its support. It is dislocated. Second, in the nature of the disappointment of the primitive Christian hope, the hope of Jesus' return, the community has now to find new resources, new ways of thinking about hope. It is disappointed. Why the separation? Well, for ample reason. 
For the Jewish community, John's high claims about Christ amounted to a breach of monotheism, a kind of ditheism of two gods, over against which, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And the charge had merit. Now we can say, in hindsight, so many years later, why, two, this is minimal. Look, by the fourth century, the church acclaimed not one, not two, but three persons in the Godhead. But in the moment, the charge had merit. Just here is the good news. In the very depth of dislocation, John's church experienced grace in their life together, and we may too. In the very depth of disappointment, John's church experienced freedom in their life together, and we may too. Bonhoeffer's teaching in life bears such witness. That is, to complete the affirmation begun last Sunday, religionless Christianity is not churchless Christianity. For the sake of life together, Bonhoeffer and we together set our minds and hearts against pride, sloth, and falsehood, against superstition, idolatry, and hypocrisy. That is, it is not a question of avoiding the church, but of avoiding the inherent illness of religion and of strengthening the disciplines and commitments within the church. So Bonhoeffer cherished preaching, the Christian hope of resurrection in contrast to religious otherworldliness sends us back to life on earth in a completely new way. So Bonhoeffer cherished teaching. I want, therefore, to start from the premise that God should not be smuggled into some last secret place, but that we should simply recognize the autonomy of the human being and not run him down in his worldliness, but confront him with God at his strength. So Bonhoeffer cherished marriage. It is not your love that sustains marriage, but from now on, marriage that sustains your love. So Bonhoeffer cherished the church, a state which in includes within it, within itself, a terrorized church has lost its most faithful servant. So Bonhoeffer cherished silence. God comes to people who have nothing but room for God, and this hollow space, this emptiness in people, is called in Christian speech, faith. So Bonhoeffer cherished witness. Only he who cries out for the Jews may sing Gregorian chant. So Bonhoeffer cherished the prophetic. It is rather the task of preaching to say, here is the church where Jew and German stand together under the word of God. Here is the proof whether a church is still a church or not. So Bonhoeffer cherished the Bible. It's like listening to someone whom we love, he wrote. I believe that the Bible is the answer to our questions. So Bonhoeffer cherished faith. Love is the name for what God does to us in overcoming the disunion in which we live. So Bonhoeffer cherished life together, a religionless but not a churchless Christianity. He cherished hymns sung, prayers offered, gifts given, sacraments administered, friendships honored, letters written, listening practice, reading enjoyed. 
and so shall we. If an hour of worship is not worth our attention, what is? If an hour of real attention a week to all that lasts, counts, matters, and works is not worth engaging, what is? We have relied in this Lent's application of the gospel on Franklin Littell, former dean of Marsh Chapel, for some guidance and insight about how best to apply our exegesis of John and our exposition of Bonhoeffer to our own lives. Littell, the father of formal Holocaust studies in America, a Methodist minister who had witnessed both the rise and terror of Adolf Hitler, preached from this pulpit for one year in 1952. But his lasting voice continues to address us in part through his book, The Crucifixion of the Jews, The Failure of Christians to Understand the Jewish Experience. Life together for John Bonhoeffer and Littell has meant the courage to find grace in dislocation, in expulsion, imprisonment, and in failure, we become dimly aware of real grace. But we first have to endure being expulsed from our earlier religion. We first have to endure the inescapable disciplines of imprisonment. We first have to endure the crime and punishment of failure. Littell's premonition was that the very same issues which led to the majority failure in Christianity to contend with Hitler are still and pervasively alive and abroad in the church. These are the religious issues named last week which continue to strangle and hobble real church life, real community, real life together. An individualism that eclipses the common good. Episodes in experience which occlude our view of community. Intellectual dishonesty which precludes our ability to speak of full truth. Religion which at its worst infantilizes, blocks the way to faith, which alone gives maturity responsible freedom. Littell has this for us to ponder. What if the faith tradition most damaged by the Holocaust in the long, long term was Christianity? He wrote, the Holocaust was the consummation of centuries of false teaching and practice, and until the church has come clean on this model situation, very little they have to say about the plight of other victimized and helpless persons or groups will carry authority. There is a symbolic line from Auschwitz to present troubles, but what the churches have to say about present troubles will not be heard until their voice is clear on Auschwitz. The tune must be played backward. The ball of scattered twine must be rolled up through the difficult and mysterious byways of the maze before we come again into the blessed daylight of faith. The meaning of the Holocaust for Christians must be built into the confessions of faith and remembered in hymns and prayers, and we might add, in Lenten sermons. 
That was the turn in the road that most of the churches missed. Antisemitism is not just a particularly nasty form of race prejudice. Antisemitism is blasphemy, a far more serious matter. When Christians denied their obligations to the Jews, the way to boasting and triumphalism was opened wide, and most churchmen are still marching cheerfully through it, he wrote. How shall we proceed? How shall we live up to the gospel and live down our waywardness? Through a moment of self-critical honesty, as when Maureen Dowd recently took the measure of her own tradition, writing, it is time for us to take inspiration from that sublime, even divine side of the church, that is, from those church workers whose magnificence lies not in their vestments, but in their selflessness. Through a moment of reflection on experience, as when Bishop James Matthews thought about his travel to India, India enabled me for the first time to see myself and America as others see us, and it liberated me to be at home in the world. Through a moment of Lenten discipline as we struggle against the great pollutions of our time in air and in debt and on the internet, as we strive to live a green Lent, park our cars, save our money, and do not reply all. How shall we live and respond? In scripture, John. In history, Bonhoeffer. In life, Littell. We are called to live in responsible freedom. And we are called to shuffle off any and all religious or secular impediments so that we, we may freely choose, we may responsibly decide. It is in our life together that we find the nutrients to sustain us on such a perilous journey. And so today, a table of mercy, a cup of salvation, the very bread of life. Amen.
please be seated. We welcome as celebrant at the communion table this morning the Reverend Joanne Enquist, our university chaplain for Lutheran students. We thank her for her ministry in our midst here at Boston University and for her sacramental presence this morning. We greet you also this morning here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to let us know you're here and help you get to know one another better and help us get to know you better by putting your name and contact information in the red pad found along the center aisle of each pew. We hope you'll pass it along to your neighbors so that we can get to know them too. We welcome this morning our music director, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett, with a special announcement about the upcoming performances of the Bach St. Matthew Passion. Good morning, everyone. April is a busy month for music. Uh, I'm holding in my hand our term book, which I hope you all have a copy of or have access to online. And the center pages uh, indicate the musical opportunities this coming month. In particular, this Saturday, our ensemble in residence, L'Academy, will be here in the nave of Marsh Chapel presenting a, a program, their final uh, performance of the season. Sunday morning, a week from today, will be our final installment of the Bach series, The Bach Experience, featuring excerpts of Bach's St. Matthew Passion, his, um, uh, the greatest liturgical music there can be found is the St. Matthew Passion. Don't miss that next Sunday. Something not in the term book, but very important to the life of the Boston University community, uh, particularly so because it's led by a beloved member of our community here at Marsh Chapel, the Boston University Symphonic Chorus, under the direction of Dr. Ann Howard-Jones, seated here in Pew 4, will, uh, will present uh, Mendelssohn's Elijah at Symphony Hall. That's uh, 8 o'clock next Monday night, April the 11th. If you haven't gotten enough, Come back here April 16th, that's a week from Saturday, and the Chapel Choir and Collegium will present the entirety of Bach's masterpiece, the St. Matthew Passion. That concert's at 7.30. Tickets are available in the narthex uh, and downstairs after the service uh, or uh, more information from the website. Finally, the Gospel Choir presents their final concert of the year later this month on April 29th. So five musical events to enrich your life this month, please make note of them all, and we expect to see you all here all the time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we give to you these gifts, offerings of ourselves, our time, our money, gifts of bread and wine. Receive them and make them worthy to our own lives, broken and poured out for others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our Lord invites to the table all who love Christ, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory, Glory to God. God. Amen. The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you always. And also with you. The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. It is right, and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth. In love you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, your love remained steadfast. You bid your faithful people cleanse their hearts and prepare with joy for the Easter feast, that renewed by your word and sacraments and fervent in prayer and works of justice and mercy, we may come to the fullness of grace that you have prepared for those who love you. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Blessed is your beloved Jesus Christ, 
whom you sent in the fullness of time to redeem the world. We praise you for Jesus who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in our likeness. Humbling himself, Jesus became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, where he took upon himself our sin and death and offered himself a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world. By the baptism of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from slavery to sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. On the night in which he was handed over, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to God, broke the bread and shared it, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this and remember me. When supper had ended, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks to God, shared it with his friends, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is God's new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for the many, so that sin will be forgiven. Do this whenever you drink it, and remember me. And so remembering these mighty acts in Jesus the Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving, a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ. By your Spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we share God's heavenly feast. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, in your servant church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.
Let us pray. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace now and always.